Turb Alpert in the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio is, as he is on most Mondays, our managing editor, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, we begin by discussing the Edwin Jackson signing by the Washington Nationals. Jackson, of course, was signed to a one-year, $11 million deal with incentives and joins a starting rotation that also includes Steven Strasburg, Jordan Zimmerman, and Gio Gonzalez. Cameron looks both at the Jackson signing itself and also what the signing does for the Nats' chances of contending in 2012. That conversation actually provides a nice segue into discussion of what that word, i.e. contention, actually means and how the definition of that word might be changed by the installation of a second wild card. From there, we continue the interview with a discussion of the slightly strange trade that sent right-hander Jeremy Guthrie from Baltimore to Colorado in exchange for other right-hander Jason Hamill and hard-throwing reliever Matt Lindstrom. This, of course, represents only a sampling of what you can expect to find on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, which begins right now. Because usually I write like 7,000 word screeds and they take me a while to get up. So I was like, maybe when I time a trade happens, I should just like record a YouTube video and upload it. And I was like, nah, that's really kind of, I don't want to be that like guy who seems like he's trying to make himself a TV star. Yeah, I don't think anyone would be, would confuse you with a TV star. Yeah, true. Although, uh, you're, you've been on, um, Clubhouse Confidential a, a couple more times now. Yeah, I was on last Friday, and uh, I've been on basically every week since the first one. Have you adapted at all, you think? Uh, I blinked intentionally on Friday. So, like, in the middle of the sentence, I just made a point of closing my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I just went, like, pause, blink, open, continue. Uh, yeah, you know, it's okay. It's like, uh, like, the format isn't exactly my strong suit, I don't think, because it's you know, three minutes to answer four questions. So instead of explaining, like, why I think what I think, which is my favorite thing to do, uh, I just have to, like, give the very top-level conclusion. And uh, so, you know. Well, right. It's not uh, – and, of course, probably the at the opposite end of that spectrum is the work of our colleague, Matt Clausen. Right. Who is yeah, unable to – know how to do a top-level conclusion. Right. Which um, – but it's why we love him. Um, right. And he's yeah, very he's, thorough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. There's no room for thorough on those um, shows. Right. Do you feel because it certainly is? Um, I think it's probably central to what we, we could broadly call the sabermetric project uh, to, to have to have that sort of thoroughness to ask questions and um, to be careful not to make unsupported statements. Um, I mean, you, I think like. Oh, go ahead. Well, I noticed. Do do you feel when, especially like in that particular setting, uh, do you feel vulnerable at some level? Uh, vulnerable is probably not the word I would use. I would say like maybe out of my element. Um, you know, I feel most comfortable with a backspace key so that I can change my mind on something if I don't want to say it, and uh, you know the ability to um, kind of explain where I'm coming from. And in that format, it's more of say what you think and leave it open to interpretation of why you think that. And so I would rather, you know, if, I, if I'm if i not as high on Michael Pineda as most, I want to be able to talk about, 
the development of the changeup and potential velocity loss and uh, pitching up in the zone and all the things that go into the reasons why uh, I might not be as high on Michael Pineda as everyone else, rather than just being like, oh, that tool doesn't like guys who throw hard. Which which is the uh, the natural reaction, I guess, or not necessarily yeah. a natural reaction, but that's definitely one uh, what a portion of viewers will will naturally think, especially if they like Michael Pineda. Right. Yeah. I, I think you know some of my opinions are not super mainstream, or at least. Uh, disagree with the consensus and so yeah i like to be able to explain where i come from on those situations so people don't just think i'm a moron uh but the tv format doesn't really give you a chance to explain much so uh you know i guess that's why they invented writing i think it went the other way around that's <laughs> true yes i guess the uh, writing was not a necessity born out of tv <laughs> and uh after uh, the invention of television um we invented we invented um, written language. It has been great. It has been a real, a real boon to the culture. <laughs> it is the uh, biggest improvement of the 21st century. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, baseball? Yeah, sure. Mm, I guess we can go back. I, I forget exactly when the signing was. The Washington Nationals perhaps uh, surprised um, a number of people, a number of analysts. Uh, fans by signing Edwin Jackson to a one year and it looks like now $11 million deal that gives uh, the Nationals a decent looking starting rotation, including Steven Strasburg, uh, Gio Gonzalez, and Jordan Zimmerman, and then maybe John Lennon, maybe Chin Min Wong. Uh, Are those guys all decent looking? I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm qualified to evaluate their track list. Right, their their numbers are decent looking. Uh, yeah. I suppose okay. their capacity for producing wins for the Washington Nationals is uh, yeah. is decent. I know you're not a huge fan of Gio Gonzalez. I don't think. Yeah, the, the command problems there are pretty scary. Like uh, I, I know a lot of people uh, look at the strikeout rate and just be like, man, he misses a lot of bats, but he misses a lot of bats by throwing the ball out of the strike zone most of the time. And I don't love pitchers like that. Right, you don't. Now. Um, so I wrote a piece – I actually wrote a piece on this trade uh, – or the, the signing, I should say. And it wasn't really um, – and, and there's, a, there's a chance I didn't communicate this thoroughly enough. Um, uh, it wasn't as much about the signing, which I think in a vacuum is, is a good deal. I mean we don't know necessarily what um, provokes teams, compels them to continue to get rid of or not you know, continue their relations with um, – with uh, Edwin Jackson, but especially the last three years, he's been between a three and a half and four win pitcher each season, and that's a thing. That's a that's a good thing. Um, I, I'm curious, and I suggested that it's not enough though whether to put the Nationals in what we might call contention for the National League East. Um, although I guess the idea of what we call contention, I mean, it's in shades of gray though. So. Um, I didn't necessarily think that even though they gained probably two or three wins with this, that it would necessarily put them in a spot to realistically contend with the Braves or Phillies. Yeah, well, I think the bar for uh, what we generally consider a contender is coming down. So especially with the potential addition of the second wild card, I mean, no one's sure if it's logistically possible for 2012, but the commissioner is trying pretty hard to get the second wild card uh, onto the schedule this year, and if not, by certainly by the next year. Uh, you know, I think uh, when I looked at it a while ago, uh, the average win total of the 
um, team that would have gotten that second playoff spot or that second wild card spot had it been in existence for the last 10 years. It was like 88, 89 wins. Um, whereas the average win total for the first wild card was like 92 wins. So this drops the bar by, you know, two or three wins, uh, in most cases. And, uh, you know, I think for teams, even that don't make the playoffs, there's value in being in a playoff race in September. So if you're now an 85, 86 win team, uh, where previously you might have just considered yourself an also ran who, you know, was a, a wave out of a playoff spot. Now you're playing interesting baseball up until the last week of the season and drawing more fans and creating future excitement. So, you know, I think for the Nationals, even if Edwin Jackson doesn't represent, like, a monstrous upgrade uh, over whoever they bump out of the rotation to make room for him, adding two wins when you're a 500 team is uh, probably not a bad idea at this point, given the new playoff structure or the potential for it anyway. Is there something – well, okay, I want to ask this question first. Is You mentioned the sort of the, the thresholds for the different wildcard spots. Uh, if we're if we say a team like we're looking at the NL East, if we say the Braves are a 91 win team, the Phillies are a 91 win team, and then say the Nationals are well, who, who knows what the Marlins are? Maybe I don't know, 87, 86, 87 wins. Yeah, that's probably fair. And then and then say the Nationals are maybe now an 85 to 87 win team. Uh, what's the what's the technique just from a sabermetric point of view? of sort of um, using those inputs as like, you know, just taking the projected wins of the teams in that division and then um, coming out with playoff odds. What's the, what, what are sort of the, the ways that people go about doing that? Well, I think the most common way is what's called a Monte Carlo simulation, which is uh, basically just taking the odds of uh, certain events happening uh, over like a thousand times. And so, so if you know that, you know, this team is, uh, an 86 win team and a standard deviation from that is maybe nine wins in either direction. So that means that, you know, they're 79 to 95, um, somewhere in there. Uh, and you have your probabilities based for each win total. Um, and you're in a thousand Monte Carlo simulations, you'll come out with a certain number of wins in each simulation. And then you can just count up, uh, how many times, uh, this team came out in first place, second place, third place, whatever. Um, and, you know, usually it comes out to where, say, an 85 to 87 win team that's the fourth best team in their division, uh, you know, they probably only have a 10% chance of winning that division. Like, you know, they're not going to win it all that often. But they'll also get the wild card spot in a decent amount of those times if they don't win their division. Um, and now with the second wild card, you know, they might even grab that spot a few times. So with three potential paths to the playoffs, an 85 win team might get there 15, 20% of the time. Well, that doesn't sound like a whole lot, but a, a one in five chance of uh, making the playoffs uh, gives you a, a decent chance for World Series, and uh, that's obviously the goal, and is a huge revenue producer. So you look at what the Rangers and Giants have experienced over the last couple of years going to the World Series, um, you know, it can really bring in a lot of cash and enable you to do a lot of different things. So I think for when teams are close enough to reach for a playoff spot, is there, there's enough incentive there for them to really go for it. Do we think that uh, if if there's going to be uh, two wild card spots in each league, um, will a wild card uh, will making the playoffs just making the playoffs um, be worth as much money as it has been to date? Uh, I would say probably more. I mean, I think um, the excitement. The I think the idea for the second wild card is to produce more excitement in September, which is a noble goal for baseball. Uh, they have probably had too many teams of late. 
we're playing just totally meaningless baseball at the end of the season, uh, which isn't really a draw for fans. There's no real reason to watch your team who's, you know, 20 games out of first place go play a game when you already know that they're mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. And a lot of times they're playing guys who, you know, you might not be interested in watching anyway. So by creating a second wild card spot, I think what they're trying to do is make the games in September more exciting for more teams, um, which will hopefully translate into higher September attendance, which will hopefully translate into more revenue for all those teams involved. So I think the idea is to increase the overall number of fans coming to games at the end of the year. Um, and if they do that, they'll put more money in these teams' pockets and make it more uh, worthwhile for teams to uh, make marginal upgrades in July in order to try and eke out a playoff run where previously, you know, it was like the White Sox with the white flag trade a few years ago when they were only three games out of first place. Uh, the second wild card will probably discourage things like that and convince teams to, uh, you know, build their roster in such a way that they're still playing, you know, interesting enough games in September to draw a crowd. Uh, now, with the second uh, wild card, will that best, is that a play-in or is that actually going to create uh, what five five playoff um, five playoff teams from each league? No, it is a play-in, and so there is some argument over what the value of that you know the wild card will be. Like maybe it diminishes the value of being the first wild card because previously you just got a first round matchup with one of the division winners. Now you get a one game chance to get into that spot that used to just be granted. So it. By increasing the uh, number of playoff teams, or pseudo-playoff teams anyway, you're devaluing the the wild card from what it previously was, but I think overall the net gain is still going to be there for teams who um, want to get into that playoff game, that you know one-game playoff at the end of the year. Because, I mean, you know, if you're a good starting pitcher, you would think you know, you're a decent team, you'd probably give yourself uh, at least a 50-50 chance of winning that game, getting into the playoffs. And, uh, you know, at that point, there's only eight teams left in the playoffs. You know, you probably have at least a 10 or 15 percent chance of winning the World Series. Um, what we were discussing, uh, Monte Carlo simulations and, and playoff uh, playoff odds, uh, with, even if there is a second um, wild card available to, um, to, uh, to teams, what do you think now are the Baltimore Orioles' chances of making the playoffs? Well, I think that before the Jeremy Guthrie trade, they were approximately 0.0%, and after the Jeremy Guthrie trade, they are somewhere around 0.0%. Right. So it doesn't it doesn't appear to help, but uh, but yes, this is what we call a flawless uh, segue into into a trade that happened uh, just today, I guess, between the Baltimore Orioles and Colorado Rockies. Uh, potentially a mystifying trade that saw the Orioles send. Um, I guess their version of an ace, Jeremy in Jeremy Guthrie to the Rockies for um, Jason Hamill, uh, who, if I'm not mistaken, has shown superior peripherals, uh, peripheral stats to to Guthrie, but not necessarily um, uh, runs allowed type stats. And then and then also Matt Lindstrom, a sort of hard throwing, high leverage reliever, who I think only do a million dollars. You wrote about it from the point of view of, of uh, BABIP and how this might be evidence of, of the Rockies' front office um, maybe looking at the wrong numbers or, or maybe having uh, cracked the code to to Coors Field. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the Rockies in their history, uh, especially under Dan O'Dowd, one of the things they've been known for is changing strategies. So uh, for a while they went after extreme ground ball pitchers, um, and tried to collect a whole bunch of guys who wouldn't get hurt by Coors Field that way. 
that didn't really work all that well. Uh, it sounds like a good idea in theory, but the results weren't there. So they've also tried getting uh, guys who primarily pitch off their fastball under the idea that breaking balls don't move as much uh, in the thin air, and so they you know, avoided pitchers with curveballs. Uh, that didn't work very much either because guys that pitched off their fastballs were pitched to contact guys, and you don't really want contact in Coors Field. Uh, now it looks like they're trying to just get guys who have prevented hits on balls in play in other more pitcher-friendly ballparks. And that seems like a terrible idea because, uh, as I pointed out in the post, uh, Colorado routinely ranks as the easiest place in baseball to get a hit on the ball in play. Uh, average Babbitt over the last 10 years is, you know, north of 320 in Colorado, uh, where it's in the 290s in most places. So, um, I would not be surprised if guys like Guillermo Moscoso and Jeremy Guthrie get to Colorado and see their numbers skyrocket because the thing that they're best at is now the thing that their park is, uh, most harmful towards. And so, you know, maybe the Rockies have figured something out, and maybe they have identified a couple of guys who can post consistently lower than average batting averages on the walls in play. But I do think that as a roster construction strategy, it's a little weird to get guys whose strengths are the uh, park or the thing that your park most exploits. Yeah, personally, I don't see the I don't really see the flaw in uh, I mean maybe post. Um, uh, what do they call it? Post humidor, uh, it maybe is less relevant, but the ground ball theory doesn't seem to be a horrible one. I, I mean, certainly Ubaldo Jimenez, uh, I mean, he's probably uh, been the franchise's best starting pitcher. Um, and, of course, even though he never really, he actually didn't post the sort of strikeout rates you'd expect from someone with uh, his velocity, but his ground ball rates were good, and so were his final numbers, I believe. Uh, and then, yeah, like a pitcher like Jason Hamill and also um, – Maybe even more so, uh, Julio Chassin has uh, posted good numbers, uh, at least uh, to, to the best of my knowledge, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, with also a sort of ground ball-centric approach. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, of all the strategies they've tried, that one makes the most sense on paper. Um, I do think that they would look at, you know, Jimenez's inconsistency last year. Uh, his decline in velocity was obviously part of why they were willing to trade him away, but uh, at the same time, he wasn't, you know, uh, nearly as good from a run prevention standpoint as he had been the year before. And he looked like a disappointment. Aaron Cook, who was an extreme ground ball guy, uh, you know, kind of fell off the face of the earth. He had arm problems, but, you know, that's an example of an extreme ground ball guy. They'd given up on Jeff Francis. They let walk away. Uh, at one point, they had a, a extreme ground ball rotation, and they kind of dismantled that and started acquiring fly ball guys. They traded for Kevin Slowey, who, even though he's not in Colorado anymore, uh, was perplexing and that Kevin Slowey is one of the most extreme fly ball pitchers in all of baseball. Jeremy Guthrie is a fly ball guy. You know, Moscoso is an extreme fly ball guy. Jamie Moyer is obviously a fly ball guy. So this winter, they've uh, appeared to change tacks again and are going away from the ground ball strategy. Um, I, I don't know that it's easy to evaluate what kind of pitchers are going to succeed in Colorado, but I do think that the Rockies need to at least understand, and I'm, I'm sure they get this, but uh, they need to change their expectation for what a successful season in Colorado is. I know it's frustrating to watch guys give up base hit after base hit after base hit um, and say, oh, man, this guy's just too hittable. We need to go find someone else. But that's what leads to things like putting Felipe Paulino on waivers. And, you know, uh, that was just a terrible decision. They had a good young pitcher who threw 96 miles an hour, and, uh, you know, he was hittable for 15 innings, and so they gave him away for nothing, and he turned into a quality arm for the Royals. And so uh, at some point I think the Rockies are just going to have to say, Look, a 320 Babbitt in our park is normal, and so when we guys give up a bunch of hits, we're not going to penalize them for that. 
and we're not going to believe that these guys have posted 280 BABIPs in other parts are going to come in here and repeat that success in Colorado. Right, and, and back to the point about the fly balls, uh, there, there does appear to be some correlation, correct, in, or I guess an inverse correlation between ground ball percentage and, no, it's not inverse. It's totally real correlation between <laughs> ground ball percentage and, uh, and uh, BABIP because balls that are hit in the air, as long as they stay in the park, are easier to catch. Yeah, right. So ground ball pitchers generally post higher babbits than uh, fly ball pitchers, but they, they trade off as home runs. So they also give up lower, less home runs because they give up fewer balls in the air. So, um, you know, the, it's basically just a, an even swap. You, you get a lower babbits, but you get a higher home run rate, and it all comes out in the wash in most cases. So, uh, is, I mean, is there a winner of that trade, really? Uh, you know, I, uh, I know Keith Law and a few other people are killing the Orioles for this. Uh, and, but, you know, no one really loves Jason Hamill or Matt Lindstrom. Uh, they didn't really save any money in the deal. I think, you know, it was basically eight and a half million going each way. Um, but, you know, I kind of understand this from the Orioles' perspective. Lindstrom's a guy who throws 96, uh, an average fastball velocity, can hit 100 sometimes. Uh, if they put him in the closer role, uh, and he racks up 25 saves by the All-Star break, he could be a piece they could flip for prospects. In July, uh, you know, the teams are always looking for bullpen help at the, at the trade deadline. And Hamill's a guy who's going to give you, you know, 180 innings that aren't that much worse than Guthrie was going to give you. They've been shopping Jeremy Guthrie for quite a while. Um, he's not really all that good. So, you know, I don't know that they were ever going to get much for Guthrie, even if they kept him and tried to trade him at the deadline. They tried to do that last year and no one really wanted him. So getting a guy like Hamill who's going to, you know, absorb the innings that Guthrie would have taken in, getting a potential trade trip in Lindstrom is not the end of the world. And so I kind of like this deal for the Orioles. Uh, I don't, I don't, this, for the Rockies, it's just more of an offseason that I don't really understand. Uh, they're kind of treading water. Uh, the team's not terrible, but the team's not good. And with Troy Tolowitzki and Carlos Gonzalez and some of these guys in the primes of their career, they really should be doing more to upgrade their roster. Uh, with regard to the Rockies, um, they have a pitcher who's interesting to me, I guess maybe for a couple reasons. Um, and I'll sort of develop it in a second, but uh, Juan Nicasio, um, who uh, was uh, injured last season, I, I think on a comebacker that uh, smashed one of his... Head. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it broke one of his vertebrae and uh, off the bat of Ian Desmond. Um, but I took the opportunity today to sort of, I guess, follow up on um, some conversations we'd had on the podcast regarding... Uh, regarding the importance of 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 pitchers, young pitchers who have excellent velocity and command of a fastball, yep. Um, and then and you know, sort of to look both at the degree to which Michael Pineda was an outlier um, in that respect, and also and then tomorrow we'll I'll look at some some pitchers who maybe at least approach uh, you know Pineda's numbers at least for like you know like. The sort of very, you know, the sort of proxies I've set aside in terms of just reported fastball velocity and, you know, and walk rate. They're not perfect, but it's kind of what's available and easy to use. Uh, Juan Nicasio, though, is a pitcher who uh, truly distinguished himself um, in that way last year. He had uh, he had pitched, I think, as maybe a 23-year-old in high A, and then uh, I believe debuted at Double A last year. Featured a fastball that, um, when he made it to the majors, averaged uh, something around 94 miles per hour, uh, and also didn't uh, didn't walk many people in the minor leagues. Uh, I'm curious as to to what you think about uh, Nicasio and where he might fit in um, if and when he returns from that injury. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Nicasio is uh, not a bad comparison for Peta, and, you know, you can kind of lump him in with Alexia Gondo as guys who um, definitely specialize with fastball sliders and kind of throw changeups occasionally as a show-me pitch, but they're primarily two-pitch guys, uh, and they've generally done very well against right-handers and struggled against left-handers, and Nicasio follows that pattern uh, to a T. I think he ran like a 6-to-1 strike-head-to-walk ratio against righties, and it was like 2-to-1 against lefties. His home run rate against lefties was like three times as high as it was against righties. Uh, his bat was like 100 points higher. I mean, everything against lefties was a lot worse than it was against righties. Um, and so, you know, I think Nicasio is one of those guys who you can look at and say, man, I really like the fastball velocity. I like the command. The slider's a decent out pitch. Uh, if they line up nine lefties against him, I'm not sure how good he's going to be. And so he's a guy who can, you can match up against. And, um, you know, some of these guys end up in the bullpen because they're, uh, probably, better off being able to be selectively matched uh, against a string of right-handers, pitch for an inning or two, and turn into a really dominant late-inning reliever than they are as just a you know an okay back-end starter. I think uh, Jeremy Bonderman fit this profile pretty well. He didn't have quite the command that some of these guys are talking about, but it's the same uh, profile of a guy who's really good against righties and not so good against lefties and never turned into what people thought he would turn into. So Nikafi was a guy who I think has uh, you know a good arm, but he's going to need a change if he's ever going to make a a real big leap to the front of the rotation. It is curious, though. Um, I mean, Nicasio in in his 70 innings uh, last year pitched pitched pretty well. Um, I think you know he had an above average exit minus. And it, 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 but what you sort of mentioned is 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 interesting because I guess as a team you wonder where the where the break even point is because even if he's not going to uh, dominate left-handers. If there are any right-handers in the lineup uh, that he's facing, he's going to do pretty well against them. And so I suppose it's like it's, it's just a question of maximizing. What is this? A, is this a Nash equilibrium situation? Uh, kind of. I mean, you know, there's certainly going to be teams that uh, just kind of think our slider right-hander is going to do really well against. Uh, obviously, when you run up against the Angels or something, they're not going to bench Albert Pools just because you have a righty who's tough on righties on the mound. Um, but you know, I think it's also the kind of uh, skill set that can be exploited to a degree, especially in a playoff series. So if you're trying to win a World Series and one Nicasio is your number two or number three starter, uh, and the other team knows in advance that they're going to be facing you in a five-game or seven-game series and that guy's going to pitch twice, they're probably going to put another left-handed bat on the bench uh, or put him in the lineup, get him onto the roster somehow, and run as many lefties out there as they can, and all of a sudden you've neutralized a guy who should be you know, a high-quality starter and turn him into a guy who might only be able to do four or five innings. So I do think that this is a skill set that has less value in the playoffs than it does in the regular season um, when teams are more willing to just roll out the regular lineup. Um, when you get into a really high-leverage game, opposing managers are going to exploit weaknesses like this. And so, you know, the starting pitcher who can't get lefties out, I think that's part of the reason why Alexia Gondo got shifted to the bullpen last year um, with the Rangers, even though, you know, he'd had a pretty good year for them, is they wanted to limit how many left-handed batters he had to face in the playoffs. And, um, you know, so if Nicasio is your number two or number three starter, you don't really have the luxury of doing that. Uh, if you've got a really deep rotation as your number five starter, maybe you can do that. But then, you know, he's probably less valuable in the playoffs than he would be if he could stay in your rotation. It's it's curious. Uh, I'm curious about this. Um, for pitchers, you know, like we discuss, we discussed, Pineda, Ogando, um, uh, Nicasio, and, and the other sorts, um, just reading scouting reports, you know, frequently you'll you'll see the note, like, you know, if he wants to be effective, he'll need to develop a third pitch. Um 
or you know like uh, this pitcher maybe has uh, a plus slider at times but other times not so much do, do you have a sense of of the percentages in which those things actually come to fruition like a player develops a changeup a player truly gets uh, you know gets control of his slider and makes it a, a, a wipeout pitch yeah, I mean, I don't know that we have quantified exactly, like, you know, 25% of all pitchers who need a changeup will then go on to develop it, but it seems to be something that is born out of necessity. So uh, one of the things that we saw with Pineda last year in Seattle, uh, his changeup was terrible in spring training and uh, was clearly a problem. I think we saw, um, you know, the Cleveland Indians light him up in the one spring training game that our staff attended. Uh, oh, yes, we did. Yeah, year. they really hit the ball very hard. And that, and that was, uh, I think, like, minutes after I had just written – uh, the Seattle Mariners preview and omitted uh, Pineda, and I didn't feel bad about it at all then. Right. I mean, you know, the changeup was uh, an obvious work in progress in spring training. It was something they were trying to have him work on, um, and it wasn't a good pitch. So when he made the major league roster, he scrapped it for the most part and said, you know, my fastball and slider are really good. My changeup sucks. Why would I throw it? And, uh, you know, he did pretty well with the fastball and slider. So we didn't see any development because we didn't need it. And so, you know, there's a, there's a reason guys who throw 86 have really good changeups because their fastballs are terrible. And without a good changeup, they're never going to make the major leagues. When you throw hard and you have a good biting slider or breaking ball of some sort, uh, you don't necessarily need that changeup to climb the ladder. And there's less incentive to change what you've been doing if you've been having success. And so I think with some of these guys who have good stuff who need to develop that third pitch, they probably don't spend as much time uh, – developing that secondary stuff when they can just go out and dominate with what they have. And so there's a little bit of a um, just an issue of need in that if they feel like, hey, I'm already good enough with what I have, uh, why am I going to bother you know, throwing 15, 20 changes a game in order to get a better feel for it and uh, get an idea of what it can do um, if I can just throw my primary pitches and get away with it. And then you know, then they lose velocity or they lose a little bit of bite on their slider and all of a sudden they can't get away from it anymore and then you have Scott Casimir. So you know, I think people... Um, like to wish on these guys and say, oh, man, if this guy who throws 95 could just add a changeup. But I don't think it happens all that often. I think the guys who learn how to throw changeups are guys like Cliff Lee who throw 88 and realize they need a change. So, so um, is, there a, is there almost like a curse of talent at that point? Yeah, I think you could say that. I mean, I think, you know, we see that in basketball uh, where you see these really talented players who can score at will. Uh, never really learn much of a post game, or they don't run off screens, or they don't uh, do things to get the ball, you know, move without the ball, because they know they can just get the ball, break the guy down one on one, and go to the basket. So they maybe never become exactly what they should become uh, if they worked harder on their overall game. And so I think you know there's something to be said for uh, needing to get better in order to keep your job. If you're good enough to uh, maintain a roster spot and a decent standard of living. Uh, you don't have the same incentives to work hard as if you're stuck in AAA riding on buses making $50,000 a year. At that point, you're probably more willing to experiment with a third pitch to get yourself to the major league. Uh, all right, last thing, I'll, I'll let you go here, but um, I'm curious uh, if it means anything at all uh, or if you've been watching the, the uh, Caribbean series. Uh, you know, I haven't. Uh, uh, I've kind of sort of kept an eye on it, but... Uh, uh, Sitting down and actually watching it has not been a super high priority for me. <laughs> have you ever has that ever been something that you in which you've participated, or are you always sort of uh, maybe check, take a look at the box score and, and that's it? Yeah, I think I've watched one game in the last ten years, so it's not something that I'm in a regular habit of 
of viewing, especially now that I'm married. Uh, there's only so many hours I can devote uh, on weekends and evenings towards baseball, and so I'm not necessarily going to, you know, um, go to bat for the Caribbean series when uh, my wife's wanting me to unload the dishwasher or something. You don't think that's a great argument? You know, I can get away with, hey, see, this is pitching, I need to watch this, or this is important for my job. Um, but, when it, you know, it's like, hey, who's that guy? Oh, he's some guy that no one's ever heard of and will never play in the major leagues, and he's playing in a game that doesn't matter. To, you well, know, that's not a people. perfect characterization, Dave Cameron. Uh, for example, yeah, right. uh, Wilson Ramos is playing in the Caribbean Series. Eddie Rosario, with, uh, one of the top Twins prospects, hit 20 home runs last year at low A. Or maybe or maybe rookie league ball. It's like a nineteen-year-old. There there are actual Kareem Garcia. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who wouldn't want to see Kareem Garcia play again? I'm not like trying to diss someone who is watching the Caribbean League. You know, feel free. Uh, it's baseball, and I understand the appeal of baseball. Um, but uh, I I just would rather hang out with my wife. Right. Well, she's a sweet lady. I can see that. She's um, a sweet lady. She did a good job taking care of me last year, so I'm trying to. You know, not be a too much of a stooge this year. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's a it's an uphill battle for you, I know, uh, Dave. <laughs> right. Anything yeah. else? Uh, uh, anything else you need to add? Have we omitted anything that you wanted to to really attack? You know, I was I'm super shocked that we didn't cover the Ricky and Keel signing because I thought that was going to be the big news of the day. Uh, did the Nationals resign him? Yeah, to a minor league contract. Hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing about the Nationals. I. They don't instill a ton of confidence because, uh, for example, the Jackson signing's great, um, but they also are just—they appear to be entering the season with Bernardina as their starting center fielder. Yeah, I don't—I don't think that's going to happen. I think the Ankeel signing means that he's going to platoon with Mike Cameron, uh, and my guess is those guys might actually share right field. They might move worth center uh, from day one and have Ankeel and Cameron split time in right until Bryce Harper's ready in June or so. Uh, you know, and I think as I advocated last week, Bryce Harper belongs in the minor leagues to start the season. Um, so having, you know, an Ankeel Cameron platoon isn't the absolute worst thing in the world in right field. Um, and, you know, guys who cover center field if they wanted to leave worth and right for a few more months. Um, so, you know, I don't, I think anytime you can find a one-win player to a minor league contract, you should probably do it just for depth's sake, if nothing else. Um, so I don't, I don't hate the Ankeel signing for the Nationals. But, you know, I think overall they've had a pretty nice offseason. Uh, they're just a little bit of, you know, the top position because the Phillies aren't quite old enough to be bad yet, and the Marlins suddenly spend a crazy amount of money. So, in the winter that they're trying to make a playoff run, so is everyone else in their division. You're right, and the Braves are sort of in a situation now where, I mean, they, I mean, besides Chipper Jones, they're both young and talented. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Braves are a team that's not going anywhere anytime soon with a lot of young pitching and uh, at least some interesting young bats with Freeman Hayward and. Uh, Brian McCann's still pretty good, and you know so there's talent in Atlanta, uh, and obviously the Phillies and and Marlins are going to be competitive. So I mean, I think that you look at the AL and NL East, it's a there's a pretty impressive group of eight teams in the uh, two divisions with you know a total of ten teams. You've got eight contenders, or at least seven, six or seven real contenders, and then a couple teams on the fringe. And then you look out west, and you see, you know, like there's Texas and there's Arizona, or there's Texas and the Angels, and I guess Arizona if you like. Uh, you know what they did last year, and you think a lot of those guys are going to repeat, and then it's just a barren wasteland of lack of talent. So uh, you didn't name the Giants. Is... You're gonna, we're gonna have thousands of comments, or at least uh, uh, yeah, Pashas. The, the super objective Giants fans who, uh, <laughs> yeah, they're they're uh, I, Giants are fine. Whatever the Giants aren't a terrible team, but they're certainly not a team that can compete in the AL East or the NL East even. Right. All right. 
Uh, well, Dave Cameron, thank you for uh, joining us in your weekly uh, your weekly spot. Yeah, you're gonna have to uh, live without me next week because I'll be uh, hitting up the slopes in Colorado. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. There's actually uh, one of our USS Mariner readers uh, knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who runs a charity who gets people to donate time chairs in the mountains to people who are recovering cancer patients, and so they uh, basically create vacations for people who need a vacation. So my wife and I will be spending uh, next week in Breckenridge, Colorado. What? Yeah, we're pretty happy. Well, who should we get as a replacement then? Uh, well, anyone would be better. So. <laughs> right. Although I will say I was talking to Bradley Woodrum the other day, and he badly wants to be on the podcast. He's like itching to be on the podcast. Oh no, I think he's um, I think he's itching because he has a um, a condition. <laughs> well, but... that's probably also true. <laughs> uh, well, fine. We'll get Bradley then. Yes, Bradley should take my spot. I like Bradley. I Bradley uh, Bradley's a very uh, very confident speaker. Uh, I think I think he's very good. Good. Well, uh, he will be thrilled to hear that he's getting invited on. Okay, good. And uh, oh, and on the on the uh, site, uh, it appears that we have some instant analysis too. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I don't think it's labeled that, but uh, there's a couple pieces um, that went up this morning. Yeah. Okay. People should look out for instant analysis. Uh, yes, uh, I think that's kind of the new thing on Fangraphs is trying to uh, cover things that we haven't always covered before. So, uh, you know, whether it's called instant analysis or not, forever, I don't know. Uh, you seem to be winning that poll, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't start anything. In fact, I'd, I'm not opposed to quick hit as a as a term either. So. Yeah, well, I think like quick hit at least has some kind of like baseball uh, terminology, and instant analysis can be turned into a crude joke very quickly. So. Oh yes. I didn't even see the potential for that, but now now that I do, uh, I'll never stop seeing it. Yeah, I've had more than one person point out to me that uh, if you call yourself an analyst, you open yourself up for jokes. Right. Well, I don't know if you ever noticed this, uh, but frequently if you have fan graphs open, um, the way the way it uh, – I don't know what it is, but on the tab, it, it says uh, baseball statistics and – Yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, I've seen that a few yeah. times. But uh, that happens. Right. Well, yeah. you know, our, our traffic would go up if that's what we actually had. Yeah, that's true. It would. It, it would, yes. Um, people like um, people like looking up uh, fil- acts of filth on the Internet. That's kind of why – it's mostly what the Internet is about. Right. Um, that, that's also why they didn't invent writing. That's right. That's right. Thank God for that invention. Yeah. Uh, Steve Jobs, at it again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Hello, Al Gore. Yeah, yeah, combo, combo package. All right, Dave Cameron, you need to get off the podcast, uh, but it's been a pleasure having you. Okay, thanks, bro. All right, that's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.